Welcome to the podcast series from the National Centre for Research Methods at the University of Southampton. In today's podcast, Professor Molly Andrews, co-director of the Centre for Narrative Research at the University of East London and a member of the NCRM Novella Research Project, talks about her new book, Narrative Imagination and Everyday Life. I've been actually working in the field of narrative research sort of broadly for, you know, more than 20 years. And I've done a wide range of projects, mostly related to aging and to politics, actually. And at one point, several years ago, I just sort of sat back and I thought, what is it that ties together this wide range of projects? And I sat a long time looking at trying to take a meta view of the work that I had done over about 25 years. And throughout that time, I had been, you know, practicing as an educator as well. And I sort of looked at these things and I thought, well, actually, it really is this idea, not only of stories, but of connecting the real to the not yet real. And for me, I'm not an oral historian. I've always been interested in how people construct the stories of their lives. But most importantly, how they can use that as a transformative experience as well. And sometimes how the inability to do that can actually block people's ability to move beyond the circumstances which are in their lives. So having taken that meta view, as it were, I thought it really is this key area of narrative imagination. And the more I thought about it, the more consumed with it I became. And was there anything else out there that particularly inspired you? Now, I don't want to say I'm not the first person, of course, to write about this at all. And the two pieces which were most important for me, one was by Jens Brockmeyer called uh, Reaching for Meaning. And it's a beautiful, beautiful piece on the importance of narrative imagination. And the other is the work by Martha Nussbaum. And her work is more specifically relating to questions of global citizenship and how narrative imagination affects what we do in the classroom, not only for school age children, but indeed in the university. And both of these books have been really influential for me. But in both works, narrative imagination was just a thread of what they were doing. And I wanted it to be the real focus. So that's what led me to it. Now, you've decided to focus your book specifically on ageing, education and politics. So what was the thinking behind that? Well, for me, I thought of these three areas as really key arenas for our everyday life. I'm not really just interested in, you know, narrative imagination. Oftentimes people would think of, for instance, literature. But I was interested in lived experiences and, as I say, sort of connecting how people make sense of the lives that they are living in relation to the lives that they might lead. So, for instance, in the case of aging, if we think about not just, you know, how are we going to provide sufficient number of homes for the aging. But actually, if we think of aging as being a challenge of meaning-making over the course of a lifetime, then you can connect that to questions of, for instance, how do we imagine our own futures? And that very much is a question of the narrative imagination. And it's a question of how we envision our journey through the life course. And central to this is how we think about the question of time temporality in our own lives and then extending beyond our lives. So that's in the area of aging. In education, I think, again, you sort of step back to what you're doing in the day-to-day in the classroom and say, well, what is actually the goal of education? And here I think Martha Nussbaum has a very compelling answer, and she says, well, at the end of the day, it must be about global citizenship. Okay, fine. We want people to be able to live in a peaceful world, coexist with one another. But how do we do that? What's the nuts and bolts of it? And in my chapter here, I tried to talk about 
the challenge of getting students to, one, be able to make sense of their own lived experience, but then, critically, to be able to extend beyond that and to be able to imagine the life worlds of others, which are very, very different from their own. So that was why education is such an important arena. And then finally, what about the world of politics? Again, I think that people think of politics very often as being, you know, voter behavior, how a particular person comes to consciousness or activism in their lives. But actually, I wanted to make the connection between the micro story and the macro. And again, to think about how people make sense of their daily lived experience, but then mapping that onto wider questions of political change and also making sense of history, both as it has been, but as it might be. So I thought that was quite a a lot to bite off, but I wanted to do that because I I wanted very much to have a macro view of this question of narrative imagination. So I sort of decided, okay, I'll go for these rather large chunks of our lived lives and see how they map on together. Looking at your chapter on education, you look particularly at the relationships between teacher and pupil and what you describe as the sometimes rather stultifying effects of some educational practice and policy on people's imagination. I wondered whether this was based on your own research or some of your own personal experience or both. I really have not done any research on education as such, except for the sort of basic reading that I that I did over the years for this book. In this chapter, as opposed to the chapter on aging and politics, in which I really have done a lot of empirical work, I draw very much on my, you know, nearly three decades of teaching. I've taught in a wide variety of settings. I used to be a teacher of young kids in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and then, you know, moving on from that to um, university settings. For me, the challenge always was how to get students to be able to make sense of they're oftentimes very, very challenging circumstances of their daily lives. For instance, the students that I work with now in East London come from very oftentimes very, very challenging circumstances. But to not to have them leave those experiences at the door and say, okay, let's now talk about abstract theory of whatever, but for them to bring those experiences into the classroom, to start with those, and then to try to use those as our raw materials from which we then begin to build up wider principles. So what Mary Warnock calls um, working towards creating a feeling of infinity, trying to get students to realize that, yes, that these abstract concepts can actually help them to understand not only their daily lives, but to see that there's so much more beyond their lives and to want to actually learn about that. People, I think, will be very interested in the the chapter on politics. You focus on the storytelling abilities of uh, Barack Obama. What made you specifically focus on him? I have been very interested in political narratives for a long time. I've always been interested in how people not only tell political stories about themselves, how they see themselves as actors or not actors in acute moments of political change, but actually how these stories actually work strategically to create political change. Now, as I went to think about trying to write that, we were sort of in the maelstrom of Obama's 2008 election campaign. And when he did, in fact, win, I promised my children that I would take them literally the election day, 2008, within a few hours of his victory. I had 
booked tickets for my two children and myself to fly across the Atlantic and to witness his inauguration. And I was so deeply taken by what I had experienced there, not only Obama, but actually the micro stories which we were surrounded by. And I thought, you know, this really is the perfect case study for trying to talk about political narratives and the power of political narratives. And I think that Obama not only is a great storyteller, like his hero, actually, Abraham Lincoln, but that he uses them with great effect. So, you know, before he was 50 years old, he had written two autobiographies. That's rather unusual. And he takes this most unusual life course of his and presents it as, quote, the American story. So he does a very, very intricate and very strategic weaving of his own biography as laying the land for wider political phenomena. And he does that time and time again. He does it not only with his own biography, but he does it every time that he needs to get the American people behind particular policies that he's trying to promote. So the health care issue is just one example, but he set up sort of storytelling enclaves across the country so that people would come and tell their stories of needing health care in particular environments, etc. And then he would use those as a collectivity to try to promote his health care policy. He's not only a very, very effective storyteller about his own biography, but he realizes their potential as a engine for wider political change. Molly, we should move on to the whole issue of methods. That this, this does feature in your book in terms of the role of imagination in scholarship, which is one particular chapter. But I wanted to ask you um, more specifically why you've used the metaphor of magic to discuss what you refer to as the challenge of imagination in scholarship. Talk us through that. Well, I was trying to think about how does this role of narrative and imagination actually affect the research projects that we do, and specifically that I do, but also more generally. And I think one of the key challenges in my line of work, which very often involves in-depth interviews with people who have very, very different lives and indeed experiences to ones not only that I've had, but that I would ever have. And it's a real challenge to try to put yourself into their framework of meaning and to try to understand life from their perspective. In a sense here, it's a challenge of belief. Like when somebody tells you something that seems so wildly different from your own experiences and from your own knowledge of life, how is it that you process that? And I think that one of the temptations as researchers is sort of to remake what we hear to fit our own expectations. And I think that's a shame when we do do that. So the challenge then is to try to think, well, from what perspective is this seemingly impossible thing actually believable? And how does that impact on the different stages of our research? And so so therefore, I use this metaphor of magic because, in fact, that's the one place in our life where we actually go and knowingly ask to be transported beyond that which appears to be believable. And in fact, the psychology of magic is is very, very interesting um, in this regard. And so that particular chapter actually looks at the history of magic. And I found out some really interesting things, for instance, that Binet in his IQ laboratory in Paris, had been particularly fascinated with magic. How is it that our minds work 
to process things, again, which seemed completely impossible. The more you think about it, the more that relationship between cognition and believability is, is quite a complex one. So I actually spent a bit of time looking at the history of magic and the importance of not only um, the performance of the storyteller, but also the context for the story, which makes the story believable, and then trying to think about how that impacts on how we process what we are being told by people whose experiences, as I say, are very different to our own. So my final question for you then is, why is it important that we do understand this intertwining between narrative, storytelling and, and imagination? That is a really important question, because I think that while we have seen a huge explosion of narrative research in the past 15, 20 years, very, very little of it has actually touched on questions of the imagination. But my feeling is that if you are going to move beyond the, quote, real in people's lives and look at how people come to envision alternative possibilities, then you can't help but think about the imagination. And here I don't really necessarily mean imagination as it's often used as something which is juxtaposed to reason, but rather imagination which is very much connected to reason, imagination that is part of daily life. And as I write in the book, I don't see imagination and reason as being in any way antithetical, but rather that imagination helps us to think about not only the lives that we live, but also the lives that we still might lead. And from my perspective, much of narrative work, while it's very, very rich, it doesn't focus enough on life as it might yet be. Or, for instance, when people are talking about the lives that they have lived, they also often think about the people they might have become had X, Y, or Z not happened. But this is always a question then of imagination because it is of something that didn't actually happen. So I think that opening up the door to thinking about not only what is real, but the what if is a very important and under-researched area of narrative research. Narrative Imagination and Everyday Life is by Professor Molly Andrews and is published in December 2013 by Oxford University Press. Details of a special discount code are available on the podcast webpage of the NCRM website. You can click through to the podcasts from the homepage.